we have to either accept, um, you know, this is a cagey virus that gives no quarter, um, that has no emotions, doesn't care how prepared you were, doesn't care how well you worked previously, doesn't care that you wore a mask yesterday. It just cares about that singular moment when an individual exposes themselves for infection, right? You know, um, we have to accept that. We're not going to outthink this thing, you know, being crafty. We're just going to have to put real effort into it. And the second thing we're going to have to either accept as a nation or not, in fact, unfortunately, now we're just going to have to accept it, is we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans dead from this disease. Tuesday, my name's Tom Scott. I'm here with RP Eddy. RP, typically what we do is we make these shows and then after we finish the shows, we title the shows um, and build a little artwork around it. I'm going to take a guess that we're going to call this show COVID is back. Yeah. Um, because it seems to be the case that COVID is back. There's a variety of statistics I have here, news that I have here. We were talking, um, you know, I'm gonna start here actually. Um, Sweden, if you look at Sweden, uh, look at the Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Finland, Norway, they all had strict lockdowns, Sweden did not. Sweden now has roughly twice as many infections and five times as many deaths as the other three nations combined. Um, so Sweden, as, a, as an experiment based on the metrics I used, did not go very well. Um, we can talk about many others here, RP, and I would like to, but let's just start there. Your reaction to what I said about the title and your reaction to what's happening in Sweden. I think you and I are paying really close attention. I think um, we've been paying close attention to this for a few months. So I think to us, it's pretty obvious that we're, we're entering a dangerous zone again. We may have had a couple weeks of reprieve after the lockdowns. Um, I'm not sure the body politic gets that yet. So if we say the uh, corona is back, you know, we'll be right. Um, we're going to definitely feel that in a week, two weeks, three weeks, and a month. So yeah, corona is back. Sweden is, we talked about Sweden before, we spent some real time talking about that country, um, a country I hold in actually very high esteem before this happened. Public health service, uh, public health infrastructure, pretty extraordinary country, thank you. Um, but they completely blew it on Corona. Um, if, in, and just for context, they thought, hey, you know, it really seems to only kill older people, we'll lock down the older people, we'll let the younger people just get to life, we don't want our economy to suffer, and let, you know, economies suffer when you lock down. Um, and it didn't work, partly because they didn't lock down the older people enough. Huge flashing asterisks here. Neither is America. Very few countries have figured this out. If you can protect your vulnerable populations, you will save lives. You will save 90% of lives. Uh, no one has done it well except Serbia. Crazy, right? The one country you never think of somehow figured out how to protect the elderly populations. So what is, you know, if you had to guess Sweden versus Serbia, who's going to do it right? Well, it turns out it was Serbia, not Sweden. Um, who, if you had to guess Serbia versus the U.S., who would do it right? Serbia, not the United States. A lot of countries have done better than both Sweden and the United States. So, yeah, it's back. So here, domestically, just as we've talked about, Tom, this isn't news. Uh, if, you're, if you're, you know, based on the conversations you and I have been having, uh, it's, it's ripping back. And of course it is. So we have to just get to this framework. We have to either accept, um, you know, this is a cagey virus that gives no quarter, um, that 
has no emotions, doesn't care how prepared you were, doesn't care how well you worked previously, doesn't care that you wore a mask yesterday. It just cares about that singular moment when an individual exposes themselves for infection, right? You know, um, we have to accept that. We're not gonna outthink this thing, you know, being crafty. We're just gonna have to put real effort into it. And the second thing we're gonna have to either accept as a nation or not, in fact, unfortunately, now we're just gonna have to accept it, is we're gonna have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans dead from this disease. Um, Germany isn't suffering that fate. Australia is not suffering that fate. Canada probably won't suffer that fate on a per capita basis. They're not doing great, but they're doing better than us. Many, many nations, a lot like us, have done a whole lot better than us. So the second point is we have to accept that we're gonna have hundreds of thousands of Americans dead. Um, sooner rather than later, and that's just where we are. Now, we can accelerate that number by continuing the socialization and the non-safe behaviors that are rampant all across the country, um, or we can say, look, we're willing to make sacrifices and lock back down to save the lives of older people, which is effectively the question. And right now we're making the decision, no, we're not willing to make that, we're not, not willing to make that sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, it's, um... It's sort of staggering. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, we're at 120,000 deaths as of today, 2.3 million cases in America. Um, I'm going to assume that the that number of 2.3 million is derived by increased testing, which which is to say that number is probably still, though, much larger. Um, you know, and here I'll just go here, I, I think about, um, and I, look, I don't know, I, I, I think generally my behavior is safe, generally my behavior is safe, um, and, and I think the behavior of my family and the people I work with is quite safe. You know, I was in our office today by myself. I hadn't been there in weeks. You know, it's, it's sitting there as an empty building because we're doing our work from a distance. Um, and then I think about Tulsa. And, you know, the, the story this week was, oh, Trump's numbers and his Tulsa gathering were smaller than he suspected or had, had anticipated. And less talk about why were we gathering all these people inside in the first place? You know, we've shut down all the sports teams and, that, you know, our events shut down. And I, but I stand by that. I think it's the right decision. And in the meantime, the president of our country was going to gather as many people as he possibly could indoors. Um, it seems crazy to me. I think, um, I think you and I, and I think probably everybody, almost everybody listening to this, grew up not just with memory after memory of presidents who were competent and other-centered and nation-focused, nation but it was something that we became a leitmotif and an archetype of who we are and how we think about this nation, right? Um, and what we have now is a president who is so dramatically different than everything we grew up with, everything we ever considered, anything we ever taught, even if you hated the politics of the president, we never ever had a president who was this profoundly incompetent, this profoundly narcissistic, this profoundly bad at his job. And I think it's very hard for us just to accept that, right? It's like waking up one day and all of a sudden thinking or realizing your parent is a horrible parent, right? After decades of having a different belief. Um, so the leadership by the president is 
so horrendous that there's no word that really gets to it. Um, why am I so particularly animated about it today versus other days? <clears throat> Probably because the comment he made at that rally. So you're right, like the whole concept of building a rally, uh, bringing people together uh, during a pandemic is, is selfish and dangerous and stupid and sets the wrong example. Okay, we get it. But then to stand in the, in the rally and say, every time we test, we find more cases. So I told them to stop testing. You know, the president of the United States literally said that. So we can go on and on with the opprobrium and the anger about who he is, or we can get back to accepting as hard as it is to accept that that's who our leader is and get back to um, we have to lead ourselves. And that gets to your question about being safe. And we should talk more about that because, you know, I'm, I don't know, I've probably been in 10 states in the last two weeks, moving progressively west. Now we're in Idaho. I uh, hope tomorrow to give you a better view of these gorgeous lakes and these gorgeous mountains. But as we move further west, there's less and less disease burden per state till we get to Idaho. Idaho is starting to pick back up. But across North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Iowa, et cetera, the disease burden was quite low, Wyoming, Montana. Um, it's starting to pick up here and it's picking up everywhere now. And it's fascinating to look at the behaviors and it's fascinating to think about shared consequence. People still do not get it. Every conversation I have, um, I've only had one conversation on the trip where people denied the disease. That was in my home state of Wisconsin. It was surprising. We talked about that already. But now it's more like, hey, it really doesn't matter to us. <clears throat> and it will. Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, let me just rattle through true statistics. I mean, what I'm showing in Arizona is that 100% of their ICU space is being used now. Now there's other space. I mean, you know, that, that had happened here in New York. We're not talking about total hospital space, but we're talking about ICU space. Um, and that, the you know, in Alabama, 28%, in Georgia, 28%, in South Carolina, 31%. Um, you know, and these numbers are rising. I think it's, uh, I, 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 I wanna talk a little bit about this question of indoor-outdoor. Um, you said this last week, but your 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 feeling is that Arizona's weather is offset by the fact that people are inside in Arizona, inside the with the air conditioning, mm -hmm. right? And you, you, how big is the indoor outdoor aspect? Hugely of this big, question? hugely big. Uh, like, Dude. look, just it's a brand new disease, like unbelievably new in the context of how long we've lived with the disease. Diseases, right? <clears throat> but we do believe that it um, is much more transmissible inside. I mean, the, the critical factors are, is the spittle directed at you? Do you have, is it getting into your nose, your mouth or your eyes? And are you getting a sustained insult from the spittle of an affected person? So if you end inside that, what's the healthy, what's the context of that spittle surviving? So is there low humidity? Is there high temperature, high UV? If so, the spittle, the disease will die faster or the inverse, the disease will live longer. So effectively, just think about it. And this is, this is all you have to know. Where does it spread the most rapidly in America? Meat, meat processing plants. I suspect almost no one on here has been in a meat processing plant. I don't think I have, but I've seen pictures, right? So it's freezing. The workers are right near each other. There's no light, it's inside, and it's perfect for the disease. So if, if that's perfect, then just figure out, you know, 
the spectrum of, of when you start approximating safer. So if you are outside on an Arizona desert playing golf, walking alongside someone or going for a walk, that's probably fantastically safe. Well, not wrong. That is probably as safe as you can be for a environment, right? Alternatively, if you are in Arizona in an air-conditioned room and you're singing together or talking together, that's dangerous. So it's, it, that's what we think we know now. Every single thing you hear about this disease, you are, we're going to change our minds on. You should take with a grain of salt. There's a lot more we have to learn. Um, you know, the big news in the last couple of weeks on the, the biology of the disease was that it appears children are half as likely to be infected. That's positive news. It's big and it's new. And then we're going to continue to find positive molecules to help us deal with the disease, right? So dextromethasone or dexmethasone was just discovered to be a positive therapeutic for the disease. So we're going to keep learning things about this as we go on. Um, but right now, that's the concept of weather, UV, wind, heat, moisture, uh, etc. On Friday, I participated in a in a, a demonstration in the city. I went into New York, and it was a Black Lives Matter gathering, and it was pretty powerful. I have to say, it was one of the more powerful experiences in my life. Um, I got very emotional, you know, and, and I, I got emotional in, in unexpected moments from unexpected things. I think it was people's passion. Like I was really um, inspired by their passion and their. Uh, it was very clear to me that there was a big groups of people who were sort of at their wits end, but they also just had such I felt hope. That's what I felt. I felt a degree of hope and like a strident desire to be heard that I would observe um, I don't know they've been carrying with them for a very long time okay now I'm speculating there I don't know and what am I reacting to I'm reacting to the nuance of being with people live and and, and seeing the way they they're behaving and, and the way that they're um, expressing their energy okay that's and, and I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was, I'm so glad I went. I'm so glad I spent the time. And what happens in New York is these marches start in these different parts of the city and then they combine. And it's like, it's like rivers feeding together. And there's moments when you see streams coming together, you get a little nervous because you feel like, you know, it's where we're gonna get packed in on the street. I bring it up, you know, one, I just want to make the observation. I thought it was beautiful. I think it's, um, I think, uh, you know, the behavior of the president in the last few weeks has been abhorrent. And um, it's part of the reason I think there's such strength in, in this group of people who are marching under the, you know, the banner of Black Lives Matter. I thought it was really great. But then I have to say, I talked about COVID a lot. You know, I wore my mask the whole time. It's hot. It's not fun wearing a mask in the, in the heat like that. But man, were we close to each other. You really figure out if you had to brush your teeth harder, don't you? We have a mask on. For sure. <laughs> My God, it's so true. By the way, I could do a better job. Um, <laughs> but I was nervous. You know, I, I was nervous for the disease. And um, 
Do we know yet? Like what, what, how do you react to any of that? I mean, I, I, I was really, I just want to make a commentary on sort of like, we were talking about the president before we try to be anti-political, but the, the behavior of the guy just seems to be outrageous to me. And there's two massive stories among others going on. One is about race and one is about a disease. And they, they sort of combine in, in essence in, in where I was on Friday and just how do you react to any of that? Um, so protest the president and then the disease. Um, quickly on corona and protesting. Initial studies show there is not an increased transmission from people in protest, uh, which is great news because there's a lot of people protesting. So initial non-peer reviewed, non-empirically probably obviously proven studies. Why would that be? Uh, because you're outside, wind's blowing, you're not talking to one person over and over and over. What would be a dangerous aspect of being out in a protest? Not wearing a mask and being in a smaller, uh, not a more confined space, but being in a higher density area with of the number of people who are, are you know, talking at you. So another thing you remember, so we talked about meatpacking plants. The other thing you remember is um, one of the best studies right now about transmission was about a choir. I think they were in Georgia. And these numbers are directionally accurate, not exactly right. So I think 45 people went to choir practice. One person was infected. 43 people left infected. Indoor choir practice, three hours long. And they were able to map where everybody sat. So again, it's choir. You're singing. You're, you're you know, exhaling disease out of your lungs over and over and over at the same group of people in a confined space. So anywhere in protest where there's a group of people exhaling on each other over and over, potential chance for transmission, if not a good mask being worn. But otherwise, the studies say right now, not increased transmission from protests. Thank God. Um, the president, I don't know what's there to say. Probably worth noting just for the historical record, he tried to fire the, the he did fire the Southern District of New York prosecutor. Um, he and Attorney General Barr went through kind of an extraordinary bad news cycle ham-handed handling of fire, trying to fire a U.S. attorney. Why do they want to fire that Trump-appointed, Trump-donating attorney? Because he was investigating Trump. Because that office is going to investigate Trump. Because that office has a history of being uh, very independent from, from everywhere. It's SDNY, Southern District of New York. They nickname themselves the Sovereign District of New York, and they hold their independence extraordinarily high. So he tried to fire, he did fire that attorney general, excuse me, that Southern District Attorney. Um, there was a whole cycle with Attorney General Barr getting in the middle of it. And um, eventually he's now been replaced by his deputy who will probably be good for investigation independence, so bad for Trump. So that's another piece of news, it's just insane, right? But then finally on, back to the protest, Tom, what was the group like? Like who was there, what did it look like? Um, what was the demographics, what was the age, what was the race? I would say it was 65% uh, black, um, 20 to 50 years old, uh, 17 to 50 years old, 90% um, masks, high percentage of masks for sure. Um, friendly, you know, and, and it, you know, they're, the, it's, it's so interesting to be there amongst all these police. I mean, there's police everywhere and the police are the ones that are taking the hit, you know, in a lot of the language. And um, I don't know, there's something about it that's like, 
a beautiful statement on democracy. I'm, I'm sure um, there's a lot of restraint going on in a way that is hopeful, you know, very peaceful, but very brave, you know, very, um, it felt very real to me. And what do I mean by that? I've been to a number of protests over my lifetime, not so many, but in college in particular, you've, it felt a little bit like a scene, you know? And in this case, this was not a scene. This, this is like, I remember this one woman, I looked at her and I just, I'm judging, but I looked at her passion and, and she was, I'm gonna guess, she was a 30 year old black woman. And I just looked at her and I was like, well, she believes every word she's saying. She's angry, but you could feel her hope. You know, you could feel like this is a moment that she's not gonna let go and that they're gonna accomplish something and we are gonna accomplish something that's really important. Anyway, that's, that's me reading the crowd and her, but that, that would be my reaction. And how about the, um, we're going to have Chief Bratton on, uh, I think next week, who's been considered the greatest police leader of the 20th century, the previous century, great leader of this century. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to him about policing. What was the, rela how, how, what was going on with the police? You know, it's interesting. So there was, um, it, there's traffic, right? So like cars are trying to do what cars want to do. It's a Friday in New York. It, I got there at about 2.30 on Friday. Um, and so the cops are trying to let people go home. I'm going to guess by four o'clock, they want to let the cars move when they can move. So every now and again, they cut lines in the protest to do so. And the protesters didn't like it. And, you know, in each case, you'd see a guy in charge who in New York, it seems to be like they wear different color shirts than everybody else, but whatever. Um, and they were like really studying the crowd. My observation is that they were very well trained um, and the cops were at the, you know, the, the butt end of a lot of protest and they seemed to handle it really well. I mean, you know, this isn't super scientific, but I was impressed with the way the NYPD handled the situation because they were there to keep peace. They were there on the, again, the butt end of, of what was being said, and they did it sort of seemingly humbly would be my reaction. I, I have, um, you know, one thing that we've talked about is it's not necessary to be technically correct right now, as perhaps as much as it is to be empathetic and to maybe embrace to some instances, the very subtle or nuanced realities of the racial situation in America. Some obviously are not subtle or nuanced. And what I mean is, you know, you and I have talked about some critics of the protests who want to come out and talk specifically about the property damage or the riots or why was this statue taken down or that versus allowing a little room for an awareness that as you were feeling out there, there's millions and millions of people who have deeply seated, you know, centuries long grievances that they need to air and they need to be fixed. And instead of listening to that and trying to wake up to understand what's going on, you can focus on why was this store looted by this group? Nonetheless, so I think we've, we've made a lot of um, room for, at least in my, my, let's say in my head, I've tried to make a lot of room for not wondering why was this particular crime committed and focusing on that you know, the law and order side of my head versus the broader, it's time for a social change part of my head. 
But I have seen these videos of people getting right in the face of police officers, young people, men and women of, of mixed races, and just being unbelievably cruel to them. And it's, it hurts me to see that too, because I've worked a lot with police for a long time. And I've also seen, we all have on TV, the horrors of police gone wrong. And I hope we can find a balance. But I, I'm not going to start talking about the law and order. Why did this happen? Why was this wrong committed, this crime committed, amidst this big, broad social change? But I, I, I think a lot of people in America that are more you know, right or law and order voters, et cetera, are going to get more and more animated and are going to be, they're going to be teased and taunted by videos of police being criticized or, you know, yelled at or have things thrown at them right in their face. Um, and so, A, I get it. And B, back to our Clint Watts conversations about disinformation, Russia's, Russia's impact on this election, Russia's impact on how we deal with ourselves, neo-Nazi Americans' impact on trying to message to us, that kind of video, and I think we've all probably seen it, is precisely what they love because it makes people feel the way, you know, the thing that I'm mentioning right now. Like, what, you know, maybe they're pushing this too far. What's going on? Um, and it's divisive. And I don't know. There's nothing to be, nothing we can do about that. But uh, I do want to make sure I'm noting that a lot of, a lot of police officers, I mean, you know, some massive percentage are out there getting paid very poorly, um, putting themselves in harm's way to help us. Now, there are some that are brutal murderers, and there's many that aren't. So I hope at some point we get back to that balance. And by the way, final comment, I'm not saying that, that this movement to radically restructure police departments is wrong. I, if you had asked me that a year ago, just flash question, you know, should you defund the police or should you do these things with police departments? My gut instinct would have been no. But the more I read about it, the more I think about it the more I think that there's a huge amount of demilitarization um, that needs to happen with police departments and, um, and a de-escalation, a de-aggression that needs to happen with police departments. So I hope those things happen too. Yeah, and if I have a hope, I mean, I feel like it's um, my own thought experiment and some in my own head, but some of what I've read in conversation I've had is you know, reconsidering crime and punishment in America entirely. Like, why not? Let's have a really healthy conversation about it. Like, um, I don't I don't think crime is going to go away. And the question is how we react to crime, how we um, prevent crimes in the first place, how we maintain peace and human rights and all those other things, I think, is is a valuable conversation, no matter how you title it. Um, and then I think the other part of it is is and for me, the more important part um, is how do we love our brothers and sisters? Like I, I, I don't know how else to put it. Like let's get let's get good at that, because everything that grows out of that has a chance. Everything that starts with policy. I'm not against policy. I'm all for policy, but I feel like if you start in that other place, man, it could be amazing what we might accomplish. Yeah. And you know, again, I think it's a beautiful, you know, human rights, the right to vote, the right to a fair trial the right to peaceful protest. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing that, that we've built and to do it in a multiracial, multi multicultural society is, I think, a great idea. And, and I think 
the, the idea that we could really try to understand each other is so powerful. I, I want to mention too, you know, Dan was trying to watch the Tulsa, the Trump gathering because he was just curious. Um, I want to be clear, Dan has never been anything approximating a fan of Donald Trump's. But and when he was watching, he was watching people criticize people wearing masks. Now, no matter what you think about whether the economy should have stayed closed or open or whatever it is you think, how the hell did we get to a place where wearing a mask is somehow a negative, right? And I can say that, you know, I feel very strongly there's one person who could really help in that regard, and it's our president. Like, regardless of what your politics are, guys, wearing a mask is probably a beneficial thing. So let's do that. Yeah, that's a good point, um, right? So if we haven't, like, like, explicitly, you know, the safest thing you can do, which the economy can't stand, is just to stay home and separate. We can't do that anymore. No way. The next most effective thing you can do is wear a good mask properly. And it's unbelievably effective to prevent you to infect others and to prevent you from getting infective. infected. So remember, proper mask, good mask, properly worn. <clears throat> and so I do encourage everybody to try to get the best mask they can. And yeah, it's become this symbol of, you know, I have to say, I'm in Idaho, I'm in a town that actually has a history of far-right behavior, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, um, a state that has a history of neo-Nazi activity, uh, really strong, like, percentage activity. And my son and I went out to the stores yesterday to buy stuff, and uh, we wore masks, and a number of people did, not a lot, but I didn't see any side-eye gaze, like, why are you wearing a mask, which was cool. Um, but it's certainly become a symbol of, oh, you're one, you know, you're on their side if you're wearing a mask, at least in the, the Trump rally, I guess. But yeah, it's an unbelievably effective, effective and important tool. And it's a generous thing to do. If you're wearing a mask, you're helping other people and you have to sit there and smell your breath for hours while you do it. Right? It's not pleasant, but you're doing it to help other people, too. Um, and you're right. If the president just wore a mask and said this is a good thing to do, that'd be the end of it. But he's not going to. Well, not, yeah. And to me, it's like an extension of the divisiveness. It's like man, we're going to fight over everything, you know, then the fact that we it, it ends up in, in the, you know, being about a mask, it's just there's something about it that's just incredibly disappointing. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, I do think my this is my general feeling. My feeling of the state of the, the world right now is that there are a number of people who are acting on hope to make a better world because we think the one that we're coming from wasn't good enough. And, um, you know, we'll see. We have an election coming. It's probably going to be really divisive, but maybe it'll be hopeful. Maybe it'll be something that is is really good for us, too. And it wouldn't be insane to think that in the midst of some some of these crises, uh, we might find a new kind of hope. Like that's actually fairly typical that those kinds of things can happen. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it's sort of, you know, what I hope for. And, you know, look, I think when it comes to COVID, and I know we keep bouncing back and forth on these things, but I think they're so closely related. You know, one of the things that um, comes to mind for me is that I think fundamentally COVID is comp complex and that I've seen behaviors around my own neighborhood that are you know, and my neighborhood is relatively progressive, however you want to put it. Um, 
And psychologically, when the world changed and the winds changed, their behaviors changed. And when their behaviors change, you kind of wonder where this is going to go next. But let me mention another place, India. Dan sort of outlined some stuff to me of what's happening in India. It's happening in India. Like it's becoming a real problem in India. And so to me, the thing, the place I keep going, and it, it was what you were saying before, I think it's very important that we all accept that the math of the disease, which is to say it's still around, it gets in people's lungs. When it gets kicked out of people's lungs, it can come into your lungs. And if it comes into your lungs, and you're, you're in trouble. And it seems to be the case that, yes, you're better off outside than inside, but it's growing like crazy in Brazil. And Brazil is essentially, you know, tropical or subtropical, which is to say it's warm year round. And that India, too, which is, I think, more tropical. I, I should, I'm not going to get that exactly right. I've been to India, but and I've been to India in the winter, and a lot of well, where where the disease is spreading right now in India is is hot. So yeah, yeah. So it's happening. Like it's like this is a real thing, and it didn't go away, and it's not about to go away. And we're going to have to have good behaviors for a long period of time. But how much do you know about India? Because here it comes. It's coming on in India now. Well, so let me do one thing first. So United States. October, September, August, September, October, November, that quarter, those four, those four months are going to be the most divisive, dangerous, and demagogued months in the memory of anyone listening to this show. Um, all the machinations that are going to go on around this election, the brutal realities of this disease, and the continued social protests around Black Lives Matter and George Floyd are going to be extraordinary. Why worse than now? Because the disease will be stronger. Why will the disease be stronger? Because children will be back at school and they will help spread the disease. And because we'll be entering flu season in the United States. So just be aware, like these four months are August. And so I'm saying June, July will be, we'll keep watching the disease pop back, back up. Like I was saying in the beginning, I think you and I and the headlines are showing the disease is coming back. I'm not sure it's in the Weltanschauung of people yet, but it will clearly be in people's awareness uh, starting in August. August, September, October, November, you get to the presidential election. It's going to be an insane time in America. Insane. And um, in some show, we should start talking about some of the games that are going to be played by both sides around the elections. Or let's say three sides, Democrats, Republicans, and foreign interference. And they're going to be dramatic. So that's just one comment I wanted to make. India. <clears throat> when I went to the State Department... You know, years ago, I was very young, and I went to work at a bureau in the State Department, and I met a, um, a guy who was 10 years older than me, so he was in his mid-30s, and he had just joined the Foreign Service, which is a little late. Normally, you join in your mid-20s, young, early 20s, normally. He joined in his early 30s, maybe mid-30s, and I was talking about, wow, you know, what did you do before? And he had been, a, I guess he worked at a hedge fund or had been some sort of stock trader. And um, to me, that seemed romantic and a way to make a lot of money. You know, the grass is always greener. So I said, oh, well, why, why, why would you possibly leave that career? And he said, because I woke up every morning reading the headlines and seeing the catastrophe and wondering um, how I would make money off of it. And I one day realized, my God, this is horrible. Um, I want to go help the world, not try to profit off of its misery. So I joined the Foreign Service. And I, the conversation absolutely stuck with me. He was a great diplomat, by the way. I wish I remembered his name. And um, when this disease broke, 
for our clients and for myself. I went around the world, you know, literally, not literally, you know, I, I studied the whole world. And we created some models about really early on which states were going to be able to resist the virus and which states were going to be hit the hardest. We looked at weather, we looked at health infrastructure, we looked at density of population, we looked at, you know, all sorts of things, multiple factors. And this was in early March and maybe late February. And at that point, I said, India is going to be in so much trouble. And I shorted uh, an ETF on India. I did what this hedge fund guy left to go be of service. I, I made a bet on the misery of India. And I, I still feel very badly about it. And I lost all the money, by the way. So my option wasn't dated properly. If I had a longer option, I would have probably made money on it because India now is obviously in big trouble. But they resisted it for a long time. So when I think of India, that comes to me first, this idea of like, wow, you actually made a bet. You would have made money on more people dying in that country, which is a kind of a perverse thing that's related to this disease. India itself, all those reasons that we thought it would have trouble, they're having trouble, right? High density, poor health care, low awareness of doc, a low percentage of doctors. One thing that might be working in their favor is it's in their culture to wash their hands a lot. It's in their in their culture, but there are there are a number of um, societal norms there that do that might make them a little better prepared to prevent microbes from floating floating around. There also appears to be a vaccination that some Southeast Asian countries have given to a lot of their population that may have provided some buffer. But whatever it was that slowed down the virus in India, it's gone. The virus is ripping through the country. And it's very, very sad because they have a very poor, every infrastructure in India is poor, including the public health infrastructure. So that was, you know, sorry to sort of bring a couple stories into one, but um, India's in trouble. Brazil's in unbelievable trouble. And Brazil's in trouble because of poor leadership. India's in trouble because structurally it's just a hard country to get this right. Modi's not a bad leader on the disease. He hasn't been great, but Bolsonaro, the leader in Brazil, has been criminally bad. Very similar to our president. And that country is in a massive, massive, massive disaster right now. They are going to overtake the United States in fatalities um, and in new infections probably sooner rather than later. Do you, do, when you think about where this could go, um, I mean, we, we all think in terms of, it seems to be the case that we all think of in, in terms of, you know, about a year from now, we'll, we'll all start being immunized um, from the disease. But I don't know, that may not happen, right? Sure. I mean, there's a lot. There's a mil, there's a lot of sort of outcomes that can happen, and you know the way the global economy is set up today, the implications for health challenges in other countries like Brazil or India, they come home more than emotionally. They come home in the form of dollars. They come home in the form of politics. Um, how do you look at that? Like, are there are there bad case scenarios that we don't talk about enough? You know, um, HIV has killed deca millions of people in the world. I think hundreds of millions of people. It's a disease I spent a lot of time working on. And we still don't have an HIV vaccine, HIV AIDS. We don't have a vaccine for that. And there was a lot of effort, not like the effort that's been put into this, but there was a lot of effort. 
First question is why? Why is there so much effort being put into this disease that's killed 120,000 Americans? It's going to kill 300,000 Americans by the end of September, probably. We've lost more people in this country from HIV in, in the decades than, than that. So why is there so much more effort into this disease than to HIV? Well, that gets a lot to inclusion. It gets a lot to the fact that HIV was considered for a long time a gay disease, then it was an African disease, and there wasn't a lot of money in the vaccine. There's probably eventually a lot of money in a, in a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. So the bad news is there's still a 25% chance, I use HIV AIDS as an example of understanding that with a lot of scientific effort, you still can end up with a zero. There's still a 25% chance we do not get a vaccine in three years. And um, we should remember that. Now, obviously we all hope that's wrong. Then there's, then there's a chance that the vaccine's developed um, by an entity that doesn't want to distribute it, let's call it quote unquote fairly, then there's the reality that any country who develops the vaccine, minus some regulatory issues they have from donor dollars, which we've talked about before with uh, the CEPI initiative and other initiatives, um, whoever does develop it, whatever nation does develop it, is going to have to give it to its populace first. Meaning, if China gets the, the, the vaccine first, and it's an effective vaccine, and the company there in China that made it didn't have a series of contractual obligations to share it around the world, China will get vaccinated first. How can you be the leader of a country and not take care of your people first? So there is massive vaccine nationalism going on. There's a serious national race to develop the vaccine. America's doing fine. Um, but so that's, that's another option. And then a final option is that we come up with a less than perfect vaccine and we rush it out. So if we have a vaccine that works on half the people, that's better than nothing, that's for sure particularly if it's safe, but if it works on, again, half the people, you're President Trump, even if you're President Tom Scott, you're gonna be highly motivated to get that vaccine out. Now, in so doing, what you're doing is you're taking up manufacturing capacity, distribution capacity, and, and you know people's immunization capacity with a less than perfect vaccine. This president obviously has shown zero, what's the right word, um, maturity, there's a better word than that, around hyping cures and, and therapeutics, his behavior with hydroxychloroquine being a perfect example. So would we expect him to have any restraint if there's good news about a vaccine made in America? No, he'd have none. And we could rush forward with a less than perfect vaccine. And meaning if we'd waited another month or two, perhaps we could have had an 80%, 90%, 99% effective vaccine. So there's a lot of challenges going on here about when will we get it? Will it be the right one? And then to whom does it get distributed? And you layer in this nationalism concept on top. So, and again, I've said it before, but if China gets the vaccine first, this will be a source of national pride for them, similar to America landing a man on the moon before anybody else. And rightly so. This is a global catastrophe and they would be someone who provided a solution. And would they extort or extract a cost for that from nations? Of course they would. Amidst all that kind of negativity, there's some kind of beautiful news from the European Union. They have committed to put up, I can't remember the number, I think they've committed to buy 50 million doses of the, of the vaccine early for Africa. Uh, I think that's a special thing. And when I see things like that, uh, it breaks my heart that America is not trying to figure out how it can help lead other nations and thereby return America to its international preeminence as a leader, burnish our credentials as a global leader 
in a time of crisis, which is what we used to be, but we're not. So if we're going to project 300,000, I'm just going to try this on. And did you say by the end of September, by the way? Yeah, I think so. You know, we're 600 dead a day and that number is going to go up. So you can, without any dramatic changes, you you unfortunately are are getting to that number. So if we're at 200,000 some odd deaths in the latter part of August, um, might you not open the schools? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think we have to accept that since, remember, people learn through stories, not statistics. One death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, right? I think that was Stalin who said that. Um, and I think in America, I, I can just tell you, at least on this car ride, seeing thousands and thousands of Americans across the country, like people want to be out, people want to socialize, people want to get to work, um, this, and people even don't want to wear masks in the midst of doing it. So. We've had 120,000 dead, 300,000 dead. So what? It's, I think, to, I think we have to accept that this nation has a callousness. Um, I don't know what the right word is. We call it a callousness or a rationality, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, that says we have to get to work. And by the way, American individualism says a lot of us aren't going to wear masks. Or just immaturity says we're not going to wear masks in public. And what we're doing, and the other thing is, Remember, it really largely, largely kills people over 65 years old. Not entirely, but, but dramatically more lethal to people over 65, then 75, then 85. It goes up about 10 times in each of those age brackets in lethality. So you get to the 4 or 5% lethal to someone over 85 years old, which is a huge number, right? So, and those people die in private. They die hidden behind HIPAA regulations. They die in old folks' homes where the family can't visit anymore. They die without press coverage. And they, they're, they're old anyway, quote unquote. So folks are probably, we have a callousness in America where we're kind of willing to accept that. 300,000 probably won't feel a whole lot different than, to America than 120,000. That's my guess. Uh, it's, it's pessimistic. It's sad. Um, but that's my guess about what's going to happen. Now, how does that change if we get stories, not statistics? So why did the UK change its point of view dramatically? They were headed for a Sweden solution. They were going to do a hands-off, protect the old people, keep the economy alive, let people go to work, don't lock down answer. That's where they were headed. What happened? Their prime minister, Boris Johnson, got the disease, got very sick, went to the ICU, almost went on a respirator. They woke up. They got Jesus. They said, okay, I get it. Could something like that happen in America? A celebrity get very sick, a child get very sick. I hope not. I'm certainly not praying for that. That kind of thing, that story could change us, change our our decision-making process here. Um, Djokovic, the the number one tennis player in the world, just tested positive for the disease. Um, He's young and healthy. I pray he'll be fine. Statistically, he will. Um, But that also tells us about sport, right? So, you know. If we don't have poignant stories, I think America is going to display a callousness where we'll be at 300 and we're not going to bat an eye. Yeah, we're in an interesting time. There's a lot going on. We are in a crazy time. And we don't, I don't think we know how crazy it is. And it's going to get crazier and crazier. And and we're missing a center. I mean, whether, I think, I think, I think I've made clear and I, I, I'm not on the side of our current president. I don't think it, any 
either of us are on that side. And yet I wish we had, and it's, for me, it's, it's, it's less political than it is human. Um, I think it would be really helpful to have someone in our, in our office who you might disagree with politically, but you felt like they were trying to hold a center together that was a value, was, you know, a value vis-a-vis -vis Black Lives Matter. It was a value vis-a-vis -vis the disease. And I just don't think we have that. And, and so we're going at this time we're headed into, I talked earlier about the optimism. I still have it. I still have it because I think, you know, these battles are won over time. And that um, to me, my, my impression is that people are on the good side of the fight, but the fight's going to be messy. That's my impression. I can't prove it. I, I, I feel strongly about it because I get around a lot and I, see, I meet and see lots of different people in lots of different places. By the way, we're going back down the Mississippi again. Yeah, so I'm so excited to watch that. Yeah, and so that'll be very interesting. And it's all about having safe, physically safe, um, courageous conversations about race. I mean, our, our conversation is going to be about race, and we're bringing Alicia Wise is, I think, going to go with us. Neil Phillips is going to go with us. Um, you know, people who's, who are good at this, who understand these things and can do it in a powerful way. Um, but I mention it because, you know, in our little tiny way, it's hopefully a pocket of hope and i think there are many 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 others and that's why i ultimately side on the place of hope than the other place but i'm also anxious for sure where, where did you know this the next few months are going to be horrible i'm sorry the disease is going to rip the partisanship is going to be intense other tools other uh, entities trying to rip us apart are going to be in full gear um, there's other things, you know, this is also a moment when those things happen, other bad things happen too. It becomes an attractant for extremist behavior, terrorist, etc. Um, just having a lot of gasoline laying around, which is effectively what this means, just is a bad thing. Could that lead to a great outcome? Could, you know, what is that stupid expression? You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, which is horrendous and inhuman way of looking at it. I guess it's true. You know, we have a persistent, massive racial disparity in this country that is centuries old and simply hasn't gotten fixed. In some ways, it's gotten worse. Are we going to wake up to that and try and change it? I hope so. Um, and if it if it hadn't, it wouldn't have happened, unfortunately, if George Floyd hadn't been slow motion murdered in front of us. It's still not happening yet. We'll see. Ripping down statues isn't a long term solution. But th this kind of pain is what has to happen. You had a shirt on the other day. It said suffer. Right. We have to go through or the country is going to have to go through a lot of pain and reckoning, perhaps to get to where we ought to be. So let's hope that for all the cost we're going to incur. And I don't mean the disease so much as I mean the division and the divisiveness, and the demagoguery. Let's hope that we get a positive outcome from that. But let's not be complacent and presume we will. So your your trip down to Mississippi, like anything you can do, you going to protest, anything we can do. That's what we have to do. All of us. This is a moment when we are we are we are just paying a massive cost and we should try to get something out of it. Right. So let's try to get a government by the people, for the people, for all the people. Let's try to get a government where America gets out and leads internationally and shows the world what the city on the hill means. Let's get a government. Let's get a people where we lead individually and we are selfless. We wear masks. We don't affect other people. Let's get a, a world. Let's get a country where we aren't callous about old people dying. And that we don't go to parties in the Ozarks or parties in the pool over here or wherever and feel like, well, it's okay if I get the disease or my kids get the disease. And it's probably statistically relatively safe. 
but you're forgetting that you're going to get ex you're going to be then exposed to people who are older and are going to die because of your callousness. Let's see if we can get there. Um, but but let's also gird ourselves. The next four months are going to be extraordinarily difficult, uh, and let's see if we can get something positive out of it. Yeah. Well, I think like engagement in our society, you know, is feels more real to me than it's felt since college. I mean, college just because that's what college kids do. But, you know, as an adult, it's not even close. And, and I think that that emotion and that feeling is where the answer will lie, because without it, I don't think we'd get anywhere. But I think to the extent that people make that sort of civic engagement thing in whatever way you can, it's going to make a difference. It's going to be meaningful. And we're going to be able to answer questions in a more satisfying way on the other end of this than by sitting back or or just hoping. Um, anyway, that's... You, you said something before that, that struck me, and it was simple and was strong. Twitter is a lie, right? Um, all this device of social media in its concept is a lie. doesn't mean each individual tweet's a lie, but like this this battle space that's been designed to clickbait, make money based on us fighting each other is a lie. I think that was really wise of you to comment. Um, maybe we also know that social media activism is a lie, right? You know, posting Black Lives Matter on your Instagram page or any of these things we do really doesn't forward the ball. I'm asking, let me, let me ask, does it forward the ball? I don't know that it does. I think you have to vote I think you have to mobilize voters. I think you have to get out on the street and protest. I think you have to go call up your police departments and say, what rules are you following? And hold your mayors accountable, uh, much like Graham Allen at Stone Valley did, for example. And I do want to talk a whole lot more about that. We keep saying we should and we haven't. But that individual leadership is what's going to change us. In this instance, social media activism is a lie, too. It's not going to move us as far as we need to get. And it, it's probably... Um, an opiate, right? It's the lotus eaters. It makes us think like we're doing the right thing. Oh, I posted something on social media, like I'm good. You're not. You're not doing it. Uh, this, you know, you could look at what we're doing and say this isn't doing it. A thousand people might watch this, but is this enough? No. No. I, yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I did my first political post in my life about two weeks ago. Um, Felt like the right thing. I, 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 but I generally agree with you. I mean, I think it's um, Twitter is a really good battleground. You know, it's it's a good place to do battle, but you might be in a battle that you're not actually in, and that, that I think that happens a lot. And my own observation, when you see people together live, and they have a meaningful conversation, the miracles that happen are beautiful. I mean, I just here's the thing about that. Like, it sounds so simple, and I say it all the time, and I'm sure people get sick of me saying it. But when I observe it over and over and over again, I, the more and more I believe it's the only way. Like you have to engage with other people because once you see what the truth is, the truth is hopeful. Right. I, we walked into a bar in Montana. Uh, was it Wyoming? Montana. Silvergate. And there was a couple, a family sitting at a table. And he had the old, the grandfather had on the most audacious and bold Trump 2020 hat I've ever seen. Think might as well had sparklers on it. And my little boys, my wife and I all, we kind of, you know, it just the whole table had Trump gear on. And I thought, oh man, like I would, you know, I, I had a visceral response. 
and there weren't a lot of other people in there. And, you know, 20 minutes later, we're all talking. They're lovely humans. They're, I didn't get into Trump, but they care. They cared about Black Lives Matter. They cared about the protests. Um, you know, they actually, of course, were, were, were good. They appeared to be very good people. They just had a very different political point of view than we did. And um, if we can find that shared heart and empathy and love as a nation, as you've said many times, maybe that's the path out. A broader conversation to be had another time, but you know, one, if I, you know, if you made a prediction last year about what would be a very hopeful outcome for America, it would be that people learn how to get more in touch with their to expand their circles of empathy, right? To love a broader group of people, not just people who look like you and sound like you and talk like you, but a broader and broader group of people. And as those circles of empathy expand, you know, so will the happiness and the wealth and the health of an economy and of a country, right? It's a fact, but it's very hard to do. Because limbically, it's not how we're designed. But if you were to have had a hope a year ago, that would have been your hope. And there's no reason it shouldn't be your hope now. It's just a moment when there's forces pulling us apart and restricting our circles of empathy um, as hard as possibly can be done because a lot of people profit from it and the disease profits from it too. This is a tough time. Anyway, I feel like I'm over philosophizing. Well, it was a good, it was good. I mean, um, COVID is back. COVID um, is I back. Wear a mask. It's coming on all of us to do the right thing as much as possible. Um, and uh, recognizing that the road ahead is complex and can we lead ourselves in a way that is hopeful. And my, my hope is love first people first we'll, we'll we'll solve the problems once we sort of commit to each other that that's my view but anyway yeah, well great to see you tom great to see you tom thanks rp